0: Hey folks, Attorney Andrew Branca here from Law Self-Defense. Yesterday was the eighth day of testimony in the murder trial of Curtis Reeves, the retired Tampa SWAT captain who shot and killed Chad Olson in a local movie theater in January 2014 after the two men had a verbal altercation that became physical. The defense presented only three additional witnesses yesterday, all expert witnesses, Dr. Michael Foley, a forensic radiologist whose testimony was delivered in the form of a previously recorded video. Dr. Michael Knox, a crime scene investigation expert. And finally, Dr. Roy Bedard, a use of force expert. The reason there were only three was largely because of the extensive arguments made outside the hearing of the jury prior to the testimony of the latter two experts. Unfortunately, much of the argument preceding Dr. Bedard's testimony revealed a substantive ignorance of fundamental aspects of self-defense law on the part of the court. The same type of ignorance we've seen lead to injustice in verdicts in other recent high-profile cases. We'll focus our commentary and analysis here, on that apparent ignorance. Before we jump in, however, I do want to mention our sponsor, CCW Safe, a provider of legal service memberships, what many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. In effect, CCW Safe promises to pay its members legal expenses if the member is involved in a use-of-force event, and those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. If you've had to defend yourself or your family using deadly force, find yourself charged with murder or manslaughter, it's easy to burn through $200,000 before you even get to trial. So if you don't have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress, it could be helpful to have a financial partner standing behind you to make sure you have the resources you need to fight that legal battle the way you want it fought, as if the rest of your life depends on it, because it really does. Now, I've looked at all the companies that offer this kind of service. As you might imagine, I found that CCW Safe is by far the best fit for me. I'm personally a member. My wife, Emily, is a member. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do urge you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe, and if you do decide to become a member there, you can save 10% off that membership using the discount code LOSD10, that's L-O-S-D for Law of Self-Defense, and the number 10 at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And I should also mention, once again, I'll be doing live streaming, analysis, and commentary of today's trial proceedings in the murder trial of Curtis Reeves over at Reketa Law's YouTube channel. You'll be able to find today's live show for this ninth day of this trial at lawofselfdefense.com slash popcorn nine. So before we get to the Bedard fiasco, or at least the argument over Bedard, That exposed this apparent ignorance of the court on use of force law. Let's burn quickly through the first two witnesses because it won't take very long to cover those. The first was Dr. Michael Foley, a diagnostic and forensic radiologist, and I'm sure his testimony was of the highest quality in terms of substance But unfortunately, it was catastrophically bad in terms of presentation. And that's because this testimony was delivered to the jury in the form of a previously recorded video shown on a large screen television in the courtroom yesterday. Further, the testimony consisted largely of lengthy, ongoing narrative descriptions of radiological images of Curtis Reeves' skeletal structure and joints. The result was a very difficult-to-understand audio and a very difficult-to-observe video, at least for those of us watching over live stream, like me, not in the courtroom. The bottom line itself was simple, however. Old Curtis Reeves was old. His bones were old. His joints were old. His entire body was old. Now, because of the video presentation of this testimony, there was really no substantive direct and cross-examination worth commenting on here, Um, so I can only share that video with you, and of course, it will be embedded, like all of yesterday's testimony, in the text version of today's content. Next up was Dr. Michael Knox, a crime scene investigation expert, and it was preceded, his testimony was preceded by nearly an hour of argument between the parties, again, outside the hearing of the jury about the extent to which Knox should be permitted to make use of photos of mannequins in the theater to illustrate the concept of backlighting. Here, prosecutor Rosenwassen argued that because the photos with the mannequins could not perfectly replicate the circumstances of the event, could not perfectly reflect what defendant Reeves had actually observed, they were misleading, prejudicial, and not probative and therefore the photos using those mannequins should not be admissible as the demonstrative exhibits offered by the defense. Defense counsel Richard Escobar responded by noting that a demonstrative exhibit was by its very nature never an exact replicate of the real thing, that the photos were not being offered as evidence of exactly what Rees had seen, but only to illustrate the concept of backlighting and therefore were important demonstrative exhibits that would inform the jury. All of this took a full 50 minutes of argument, and ultimately the relevant photos would actually be put in view of the jury for a totality of much less than five minutes at the very close of Knox's direct testimony, which was conducted by defense counsel Escobar. And much of even that brief exposure was directly the result of the images being kept in the jury's view as the state demanded yet another sidebar with Judge Barthel as they were being displayed. The brief showing of the mannequin photos was, however, preceded by nearly two hours of direct questioning of Knox on the subject of the incompetence of the criminal investigation into this shooting. So really, Knox's testimony was perhaps 95% crime scene investigation critique and perhaps as much as 5% display of the photos the party spent an hour arguing about. Thankfully, Prosecutor Rosenwassen's cross-examination of Knox was only about five minutes in duration, not surprisingly, given that even the state has conceded that the investigation was pretty much a train wreck, and he certainly did not want to focus on the mannequin photos against which he had so forcefully argued earlier. And that gets us to the third and final witness of the day, the unfortunate witness in the sense of the argument that preceded his testimony, Dr. Roy Bedard, use of force expert. By the way, as a bit of trivia, Dr. Roy Bedard had also been a use of force expert in the trial of Michael Draca. He was the handicapped parking spot shooting. That prosecution was also led by Prosecutor Rosenwassen the shorter prosecutor in this Curtis Reed's trial, except in that case, Roy Bedard was the use of force expert witness for the state, for Prosecutor Rosenwassen. And in this trial, of course, Dr. Roy Bedard is the use of force expert for the defense, countering Prosecutor Rosenwassen. In any case, this was the final witness of the day, Uh, the defense use of force expert witness. And as occurred with Knox earlier, once again, the party spent about an hour outside the hearing of the jury arguing about the scope of testimony to be allowed by Dr. Bedard. And sadly, it was this argument that revealed that once again, we have a criminal court apparently ignorant of substantive use of force law in a self-defense case. Indeed, so confused was the argument by the state defense and George Barthol that it's difficult to intelligently summarize it here. But of course, I'll make my best effort. First, however, we may as well make sure that all of us here properly understand the legal concepts that were mangled yesterday in this courtroom argument preceding Dr. Bedard's testimony. So two of the elements of any claim of self-defense are proportionality and reasonableness. By the way, folks, uh, if you don't know these use of force elements, there are only up to five elements of a claim of self-defense, only five, not 500, not 50, But these are the building blocks of a claim of self-defense in all 50 states. If you don't understand these elements, you can't possibly understand self-defense law. We make an infographic, this infographic, available for free. It provides a brief description of these five elements. It's just a PDF download. We don't charge a penny for it. You can get this infographic at lawofselfdefense.com slash elements. And for those of you who may be instructors and would like a poster-sized version of this for your classroom, we make that available too. That's not free. We have to print that and ship that. But again, you can also get that at that same URL, defensecom slash elements. So again, two of the elements of any claim of self-defense are proportionality and reasonableness. And I really want to focus on proportionality here. It has to do with the degree of force involved in the use of force event, and it's always assessed from two perspectives, the force threatened and the force used in defense. Those are the two forces that must be proportional to each other. Specifically, the force used in defense must be no greater than necessary to neutralize the force being threatened. If the force used in defense exceeds that intensity, it has become excessive disproportional and unlawful. You lose the element of proportionality, you lose self-defense as a legal defense. As a practical matter, use of force law for self-defense purposes really puts force in only two distinct buckets, non-deadly force and deadly force. Deadly force is force that is readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury. Non-deadly force includes all lesser degrees of force, so force not readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury. Florida law reflects this two buckets of force concept perfectly in its core self-defense statute, 776012, which is linked in the text version of today's content. The first sentence of that statute sets out the conditions that must exist in order for non-deadly force, it says except deadly force, to be used in self-defense. Then the second sentence of that statute sets out the additional conditions that must be met before deadly force can be used in self-defense. I'll read you the statutory language. Again, it's only two sentences. Quote, a person is justified in using force except deadly force, against another when and to the extent that the person reasonably believes that such conduct is necessary to defend himself against the other's imminent use of unlawful force. So that's the non-deadly force component. The deadly force component is, quote, however, a person is justified in the use of deadly force and does not have a duty to retreat if he reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself or to prevent the imminent commission of a forcible felony, close quote. Now, I do want to note what I just read you is the version of the Florida Self-Defense Statute, 776012, that was in effect at the time of the shooting on January 13th, 2014. That's the one that will be applied in this trial. The current version of 776012 still reflects this two buckets of four structure, but in separate paragraphs rather than in separate sentences. Now, Dr. Bedard had intended to illustrate this concept of proportionality using an illustration commonly referred to as a use of force continuum. And here is an example, a common example of such a use of force continuum. I'll leave it up on the screen as I talk through the next few sentences so you can see it. And of course, I'll embed it in the text version of today's content. Now, as you can see, there are various levels of force defined as being reasonable Under different conditions of stress. This use of force continuum concept is commonly used in training police and security officers, and also not infrequently for civilians, although the application for civilians is arguably less appropriate. The reason the use of force continuum may be less appropriate for civilians is that police and security are often operating under a base set of assumptions that don't apply in the civilian context. For example, police and security are often permitted to be the initial physical aggressors in a confrontation, and the use of force continuum assumes this to be the case. In contrast, civilians are never permitted to be the initial physical aggressor. Similarly, police and security generally don't have a duty to retreat if the circumstances otherwise justify their use of force, but civilians very well may have such a duty. Also, in particular, with respect to the facts of this Curtis Reeves shooting, the shooting obviously involves the use of deadly defensive force, so all the lower levels of the use of force continuum are arguably irrelevant to the facts of this case. Now, in the argument preceding Bedard's testimony, Prosecutor Glenn Martin argued that the use of force continuum should not be admissible by Bedard's testimony because it was inapplicable to the civilian context and Reeves was a civilian when he shot Olson. Martin was particularly vehement that Bedard not be permitted to argue that if a force was threatened, a meaning X, if x force was threatened by Olson, then why defensive force was justified and reasonable by Reeves? Only the jury can make the call on what is reasonable. argued prosecutor Martin. further, prosecutor Rosenwassen argued that there was not even evidence in the record that Reeves had ever been taught this concept of a use of force continuum, given how long ago his police career career had occurred in counter argument, defense counsel Dino Michaels argued that Rees had been a police officer for some 27 years, that the use of force continuum was commonly taught to police, and that Bedard ought to be able to at least draw his own illustration of this concept for the jury. Both of these arguments rather profoundly miss the point, however. We can discard entirely the fact that Rees had been a police officer for decades, and we can discard entirely the use of force continuum that is arguably inapplicable in the civilian context generally and to the facts of this trial in particular. What we cannot discard is the applicable Florida law that applies in this case, particularly the two buckets of force framework reflected in that law. Indeed, the prosecution's argument illustrates a profound misunderstanding of what aspects of reasonableness fall within the province of the jury and what aspects are simply matters of law and therefore outside the province of the jury. Florida law specifically provides that deadly defense of force is reasonable and permissible and legally justified if it is being used to stop a deadly force threat or a forcible felony, period. If those facts exist, the legal outcome is a matter of law, not a matter of jury discretion. Now, whether those facts exist certainly is within the discretion of the jury. And whether Reeves' subjective perception of such facts was an objectively reasonable perception is within the discretion of the jury. That's quite correct. But once the jury has decided if it decides, that it believes that Reeves was reasonable in perceiving an eminent deadly force threat, the result of that conclusion, that his use of deadly defensive force was justified, is outside the discretion of the jury, but rather is simply a function of law. That being the case, if Bedard was going to be prohibited from covering the multi-level use-of-force continuum, he certainly must be permitted to cover Florida's Two buckets of force framework reflected in Florida statute and noting that the use of deadly defensive force against a deadly force threat is reasonable purely as a matter of law, just as Judge Barthol would be instructing the jury prior to deliberations. Now, again, whether Reeves reasonably perceived that he was facing a deadly force threat is up to the jury. If they decided he was, however... Then Reeves' use of deadly defensive force was reasonable as a matter of law, and Bedard ought to be able to testify to that before the jury. Instead of a conclusion reflecting that proper understanding of Florida use of force law, we got from Judge Barthol a request to the parties to come to some kind of compromise on this matter of law. No, Judge Barthol, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. If the state is arguing for one position on a matter of law and the defense for a different position on a matter of law, the correct answer is not to average those two positions out. For all we know, they're both wrong, as they were both wrong in this instance yesterday in their arguments. The correct answer is to look to the actual law, and that's the job of the judge. And the judge here is Judge Barthel. That's you, Your Honor. We just need you to do your job. Like we needed Judge Chu to do her job in the Ponder trial, and like we needed Judge Wamsley to do his job in the Ahmaud Arbery trial. It would be nice if you, unlike them, did your job. Separately from all that nonsense, Bedard presented competent testimony on a variety of use of force issues. Well presented. It's worth watching if Admittedly, it's somewhat longer than necessary, uh, and that was followed by a relatively brief cross-examination by the state. So I present present to you in the text version of today's content uh, that argument over Bedard's testimony outside the hearing of the jury, then Bedard's direct examination uh, by the defense and his cross-examination by the state. Okay, folks, that's all I have for you on yesterday's proceedings in the Reese trial, at least for the moment. Uh, Again, I'll be doing live stream analysis and commentary over at Reketa Law's YouTube channel today on today's proceedings. You'll be able to find today's live show for this ninth day of this trial at lawofselfdefense.com slash popcorn nine. That's popcorn followed by the number nine. And remember, if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, That's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill, my family is hard to kill, then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law, so you're hard to convict. All right, folks, until next time, I remain Attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.